All right, I got a few things that I need to talk about before we get into things today. Uh, First is this. So we're in this series called Making Marriage Work. Next week is called Godly Sex. Having Godly Sex. And why am I I saying that? I want to prepare you. Um, It is God's purpose for sex, the beauty and the power of sex within marriage. But you need to make a decision whether you want your kids to be in this service. And because that, be, that can be a little awkward. And I'm just giving you, a for, I'm forewarning you right now, okay? <laughs> we have at least one amen. All right. <laughs> now, when you talk about sex, you just make the, the you just use the word sex. In many hearts and in many minds, pain comes up. And in this sermon next Sunday, I cannot touch on all of the pain that's out there and all of the misunderstandings and all of the confusion that is in our culture, which is why we are hosting with High Point. It's at High Point, but we're part of the the group of churches that put this together. We're doing a conference called Sexuality everywhere. And it is simply a recognition that the narrative of our sexuality is being given by the world 24-7. Through media, through internet, through friends talking to friends, there is a narrative about there, out there about sexuality that's not biblical and it's not God's perspective. And so we want to speak into this and we want to speak into it in a careful, caring, loving, yet truthful way. So we brought speakers in, national speakers, as well as many local speakers, and there's going to be tracks for everybody. If you've got sexual trauma, there's a track for that. If you've got and deal with same-sex desire, there's a track for that. If you're trying to deal with people that have abuse or same-sex desire, you, you may want to come and just educate yourself. Um, now, we have a special, a special meeting. At, at, uh, it's actually at City Church on Friday afternoon from 1 until 2.15. This is for teenagers. There's no one that's more confused and there's, there's no more at, there's no group that more is at stake than our teenagers on their sexuality. And we need to talk to them. We, we need to put the issues out there and see them for what they are. And so we want to help teenagers work through this. We've got Christian schools are busing in to be here. It's, it's in the sanctuary. But I want to open it up to all public school children, um, middle school and high school. Obviously, you'd have to provide a note for them. You'd have to get transportation for them. But... I believe you, you want your children to hear about God's narrative on their sexuality and on what, what is going on in our current culture. Um, so that is happening Friday at 1 o'clock. And, and, and with that, I want to I urge you, um, we have our Pray 130 starting tomorrow morning. There are many slots left. The Pray 130 is right outside the door here. One of the main things that we're praying about this week is sexuality. Praying about 
our children, praying about what's going on in our culture. The Bible says that we're, when the enemy comes in like a flood, how many know that the enemies come in like a flood in this area? It says the Spirit of the Lord is going to raise up a standard against him. And so I, we're, we're going to be praying. We're going to be praying this week for the conference and for Sunday and for all of this. All right. So I want to just say a word before we read the text and get in today's message about who this message, the reason why it's called making marriage work instead of making your marriage work is because a lot of people aren't married. This message is for single people, whether you're single, never been married, or you've been divorced and you're single, and there's still a desire in your heart to be married. This message is about your future spouse, your future marriage. If you have been divorced and remarried, here's what this message is about. Here's what it's not about. It is not to shame you for past failure, past sin, to bring things up, to what went wrong. That is, that's not who God is. That's not what he's about. Jesus came and he died and he rose again to wash us, to cleanse us, and to give us a new beginning. So this is about your present marriage. Without any accusation about anything that happened in the past. Okay. Is that enough disclaimers? Let's stand together. This is, by the way, this is part two in this series, <laughs> and I watched part one yesterday, and trust me, you, Pastor Joel spoke last week, you want to see that message. It was, a, it was a classic. I got done listening to that message, and I said to Alice, would you want to preach after that message? I mean, are you kidding me? That was the gold, the gold standard. All right, here we go. Woo! Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, go, Call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we love you today. Lord, I ask that you would wash over our hearts and our minds with your word, with your presence. Lord, I pray for those who are stuck that you would unstick them today, that you would set them free. I pray for every marriage here that you would do something great for every single one of them. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. So it's called, the title of the message is Making Marriage Work Expectations. And I want to I ask us this question. Where do we get our expectations for what marriage should be? 
And I will submit to you, and this is point one, that most today are entering into a contract for happiness. Most. And I don't mean just most people in the world. I mean most Christians don't, don't have any idea what they're getting into with marriage. And it's just, it comes naturally that this is why I get married because I want to be happy. Now, where do, these expect, where do our expectations for marriage come from? Number one, culture. The media has given us a message in a thousand different ways that, well, let's just do Jerry Maguire. You complete me. I am a half person. I am looking for that other half. When I find that other half, I will be complete. It's said in almost every fairy tale. They lived happily ever after. It gives the idea they were less than happy and then they found the right one. And once you find the right one, and it's the key, you gotta find the right one. You gotta find the one that is your other half. When you find that right one, there is happiness promised. Now, so that's one place that expectations come from in every romance movie, every romance novel is about finding that right one and how you find the right one and how happy you are when you find the right one. Okay, now, but second, our, our expectations for marriage are tempered. They're tempered by our mom and dad's marriage. Okay, um... It's tempered by other couples that we know. Even the, quote, happiest couples aren't that happy. And so we're, we're somewhat tempered by, yeah, it can't be exactly what Hollywood says because in real life, I'm not seeing what they're describing except maybe during the engagement time. But what they're describing, I don't know that it... But then what happens is you find someone or someone finds you and oh my it feels so good to be loved it feels so good to not be alone it feels so good to be chosen by somebody and in that feeling people rise up and make this lifelong commitment. If, if he's willing to make the lifelong commitment, then I'm willing to make the lifelong commitment and, and we're going to step out and we're going to step into this thing because of it, it's, it's the promise of happiness. It's called a contract. Contract is entered into for mutual benefit. In this case, the mutual benefit we're signing up for is happiness. I am entering into it. I am assuming that marriage is going to make me more happy than I was. Problem with the contract, of course, it's very easy to break a contract. All you got to do to to break a contract is prove that the other party is not doing their part. In this case, 
making me happy. I got into this to make me more happy, and if I am not more happy, then I'm going to tell you I'm not more happy. This is not working. Here's what I need to be more happy, and if they aren't doing that, and they're not listening, and that's going on for a time, then I've got a reason to break the contract, because this isn't what I signed up for, folks. So it's funny because in the biblical text with the woman at Samaria, we really don't know that much about Samaritan culture. It is not Jewish culture. The Samaritans were, even though it was on Israel's land, they were resettled Assyrians. They, they had been resettled by when Assyria conquered Israel. They sent in their people to populate the area of Samaria. And then they sent some Jewish priests to give them the law so that somehow they could coexist with the God of Israel. And so we don't really know what Samaritan culture was exactly. But we know this. <laughs> this woman had been married five times and divorced five times. Why was she divorced? Well, we, we totally understand that. Because somebody wasn't happy. It was either her or it was the man, but somebody wasn't happy. And, and when you're in this contract for happiness and you find yourself unhappy, then you break that contract. And it's not your fault. It's the other person's fault because that you entered in it for happiness and you're not happy. And so I'm getting out of it. And we understand this. We can understand divorce today because it's not just their culture back then, it's our culture today. How does it work? Okay, well, I signed up to be happy. I felt loved, I felt not alone, I felt chosen, and then I look up after being married and I find I'm not feeling loved. In fact, I'm feeling all alone and the loneliness is more profound married than it was single because when I was single I had hope I could find somebody but now I'm, I'm stuck I'm imprisoned I don't feel chosen I don't feel special I am dealing with depression every day because of the trap the prison that I'm in and because of that of this profound unhappiness. I am willing to go through the trauma of divorce rather than stay in this mess. I am willing to experience the trauma, the shame, the everything else, anything to get away from this contract that I have entered into. So we totally, I I get it. I get it, I get. I understand divorce, I understand why there are so many divorces, and we can easily understand, so now she's living with somebody. In this, the, the contract for happiness, living together makes perfect sense. Why would you live together? Because before I'm going to make that commitment, I'm going to measure my happiness being with you. I can't really tell when we're not living together. So we're going to live together first, And I'm going to find out if my happiness is going up. And if my happiness is going up, that will be the confirmation. Then I'll make the lifelong commitment. Makes perfect sense. Here's the problem, of course. You're living together and you're trying to figure out if you're more happy or not. Am I really more happy or not? 
So here's the first truth that we have to understand that Jesus brings to this woman at the well. Before we get the right expectation for marriage, we have to have the right expectation for happiness. It turns out, years ago, the Star Tribune reported this survey on the relationship between marriage and happiness, and, and I think it was the AP that did it, but it, here was the relationship. One year before marriage, the average person rated their happiness between 1 and 10 as a 7. On their wedding day, they rated themselves 1 to 10 on happiness as a 9. One year after marriage, they rated themselves 1 to 10 as a 7. And here was the conclusion. There's no relationship between marriage and happiness. If you're happy single, you'll be happy married. If you're unhappy single, you'll be unhappy married. Turns out that God has put happiness in something else. It's in Jesus. She really did have the wrong man. <laughs> Jesus said, I'm here. I'm here, and when I look at you, my eyes are not filled with judgment. I am filled with compassion. If you knew who I was and what the gift of God was, I want to give you a gift of my love of my intimacy, of eternal life. If you would ask me, I would give you this water that would satisfy you not just today, but it would be the means of happiness for time and for all eternity. Colossians 2.10 says this, we are complete in him. I'm all for the line, you complete me. You just need to say it to Jesus. You complete me. Before you get that, you can't really enter marriage because you're gonna enter marriage for mutual benefit and to get something and you're already set up to fail. So I was... uh, I got saved through the Baptist Student Union. I was so excited about God. My, my, when God was moving in my life, my heart came alive, and it wasn't just alive to God. It became alive to the beautiful Christian women around me. <laughs> and I'm just like, this is the greatest thing. I've got God, but I'm also going to get one of these Baptist women. I'm so excited. <laughs> I, I could I honestly, I, I, I just... There were so many women, and I, I, any one of them would have been amazing. And so I'm, I, I, do, I remember we, we met down at, the, uh, at Union South, and we'd be in worship, and, and it would be, well, of course, we didn't raise our hands in the Baptist church, but <clears throat> I exalt thee. God, is it that blonde two rows ahead? I exalt thee. I'd be happy with that brunette over there. I think she's beautiful. I exalt thee. I'd love any of these women. God, bring them to me. Oh, Lord. I was just very distracted. Very, very distracted. And, and so we had, a, we had a speaker, and he spoke on Expectations. And he said this, God is preparing you for your future spouse. 
And what he's trying to do is get you content in him so that you can bring, you can give something to your marriage instead of having to get something from your marriage. And so he's, he's, you are actually, if you're looking around and trying to find out the right one, you are actually hindering the process. You need to focus on Jesus. You need to focus on your relationship. You need to get yourself happy with just God. And I'll tell you what, folks, I heard that. And I just, and and the idea that I was delaying the process by what I was doing, I'm like, oh boy. So if I really want this, I need to stop doing what I'm currently doing because I'm delaying it. God's preparing some poor woman out there and she's waiting for me to get with the program. And so I'm just like, all right, God, I'll do this. But, and it's just my personality. I'm very, a very driven personality. I said, I, I will do this, but if I do this, you're going to have to hit me over the head with a baseball bat to tell me when it's time and when it's the right one. And that is another story for another day. And it was dramatic. And I don't even like telling it because it sometimes gives people the wrong expectation of how it's going to happen with them. But that happened. Okay. So let's move on to point two. Marriage. A covenant for intimacy. Genesis 2, 18 and 24 and 25. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So God's purpose is a covenant for the purpose of intimacy, a place where your focus is not what you're going to get, but what you're going to give, that you are to give yourself away. Naked and without shame is completely vulnerable completely revealed, yet confident of acceptance and closeness. This is what allows us to be close. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. This is why God made marriage, was for for closeness, intimacy. But then, you just go over one chapter to chapter 3, and nakedness is given again three times, but it's negative all three times. First, after sin and the shame of sin, they are hiding first from one another with fig leaves. And then they're hiding from God in the trees and God has to come and say, where are you? And so what happens in redemption is Jesus shed blood to bring us out of hiding. He brings us first to God And then he redeems the potential for our marriages. He takes away the dividing barriers so that we can be close to him and to each other. And as Joel said last week, there's no greater picture of redemption than marriage. That's how God made marriage. Covenant is between three and not two. Matthew 19, 6. What God 
has joined together. Marriage is very important to God because redemption doesn't just bring us back to Jesus, back to God. It also brings us together. Covenant, unlike a contract, is very hard to break. I don't have to measure my happiness all the time. My happiness is in Jesus. I can always trust my partner's faults and sins to God. Okay, point three. Isn't this going fast? Hindrances to intimacy. First, the differences between men and women. Dave Barry wrote a humor column for the Miami Herald for many years, and he's written many books, and he's got an article on the differences between men and women to make it real for us. Here we go. Let's say a guy named Fred is attracted to a woman named Martha. He asks her out to a movie. She accepts. They have a pretty good time. A few nights later, he asks her out to dinner. And again, they enjoy themselves. They continue to see each other regularly. And after a while, neither one of them is seeing anybody else. And then one evening, when they're driving home, a thought occurs to Martha. And without really thinking, she says it out loud. Do you realize that as of tonight, we've been seeing each other for exactly six months? And then there is silence in the car. To Martha, it seems like a very loud silence. She thinks to herself, I wonder if it bothers him that I said that. Maybe he's been feeling confined by our relationship. Maybe he thinks I'm trying to push him into some kind of obligation that he doesn't want or isn't sure of. And Fred is thinking, gosh, six months. And Martha is... (laughs) And Martha is thinking, but hey, I'm not so sure I want this kind of relationship either. Sometimes I wish I had a little more space so I'd have time to think about whether I really want us to keep going the way we are, moving steadily towards, I mean, where are we going? Are we just going to keep seeing each other at this level of intimacy? Are we heading toward marriage, toward children, toward a lifetime together? Am I ready for that level of commitment? Do I really even know this person? And Fred is thinking... So that means it was, let's see, February when we started going out. Which was right after I had the car at the dealer's, which means, let me check the odometer. Whoa, I am way overdue for an oil change here. And and Martha is thinking, he's upset. I can see it on his face. Maybe I'm reading this completely wrong. Maybe he wants more from our relationship, more intimacy, more commitment. Maybe he has sensed, even before I sensed it, that I was feeling some reservations. Yes, I bet that's it. That's why he's so reluctant to say anything about his own feelings. He's afraid of being rejected. And Fred is thinking, and I'm going to have them look at the transmission again. I don't care what those morons say. It's still not shifting right. And they better not try to blame it on the cold weather this time. What cold weather? It's 87 degrees out. And this thing is shifting like a garbage truck. And I paid those incompetent thieves $600. And Martha is thinking, he's angry. 
and I don't blame him. I'd be angry too. I feel so guilty putting him through this, but I can't help the way I feel. I'm just not sure. And Fred is thinking, they'll probably say it's only a 90-day warranty, scumballs. (laughs) And Martha is thinking, maybe I'm just too idealistic waiting for a knight to come riding up on his white horse when I'm sitting right next to a perfectly good person, a person I enjoy being with, a person I truly do care about, a person who seems to truly care about me, a person who is in pain because of my self-centered schoolgirl romantic fantasy. And Fred is thinking, warranty? They want a warranty? I'll tell you what they could do with their warranty. Fred, Martha says aloud, What? says Fred, startled. Please don't torture yourself like this, she says, her eyes beginning to brim with tears. Maybe I should have never. Oh, dear, I feel so. She breaks down sobbing. What, says Fred. (laughs) I'm such a fool, Martha sobs. I mean, I know there's no night. I really know that it's silly. There's no night and there's no horse. There's no horse, says Fred. (laughs) You think I'm a fool, don't you, Martha says. No, says Fred, glad to finally know the correct answer. It's just that, it's that I, I need some time, Martha says. There's a 15-second pause while Fred, thinking as fast as he can, tries to come up with a safe response. Finally, he comes up with one that he thinks might work. Yes, He says, Martha, deeply moved, touches his hand. Oh, Fred, do you really feel that way? She says, what way? (laughs) Says Fred, that way about time, says Martha. Oh, says Fred, yes. Martha turns to face him and gazes deeply into his eyes, causing him to become very anxious about what she might say next, especially if it involves a horse. (laughs) At last, she speaks. Thank you, Fred, she says. Thank you, says Fred. And that's the difference between men and women. So uh, years ago now, uh, it was actually it was when it was Lake City. They had Mark Gunger here, and Mark Gunger does marriage seminars. Really, if you're a man, you want to go to a Mark Gunger marriage seminar because it's it's he just he gets it. It's the first time I've been in a marriage seminar. I'm like, oh my, it's okay. I'm a man, and it's okay. But he was telling about this woman that came in and was sure that her husband no longer loved her. And she was like, he's a good man, but I, he, doesn't, he doesn't love me. And Mark is like, well, tell me why, why you know that he doesn't love you. And she said, because, uh, because I have been in a lot of pain and I've been struggling and he... He doesn't, he doesn't know it. He doesn't, he doesn't feel it. He doesn't share it with me. He doesn't understand me. And Mark's like, well, well, have you ever told him? 
And she's like, oh, I've given him plenty of indications. I'm like, he's like, well, give me, give me an example. And well, he asked me if something was wrong. And I said, nothing. And he said, okay, and went his way. And Mark's like, hmm. You told him nothing. Yeah, but I gave it in a tone that he should have known. If he loved me, he would know me. He would, he would figure it out. He would understand. If he really loved me, he would, he would enter into this. And, and Mark says to her, I think I understand the problem, ma'am. The person that you want him to be, that person you're describing to me, it's not a man. <laughs> That's, a, that's another woman. Men aren't like that. Men don't get it. You actually have to talk to men. You have to tell them what you want them to know. I learned this early on in our marriage. Alice and I, um, we approach life very differently and I just, when she would tell me what's going on with her and what was wrong and the pain she was in, I just, whenever, whenever I give a, a problem, it's because I want a solution or suggestions for a solution. So I would always offer solutions for her problems as a caring, loving husband. And Alice had to, had to re-educate me and say, honey, no. No, this isn't going to work. Listen. When I tell you my problem, I don't want a solution. I just want to know that I'm not alone in it. I need you to feel sorry, to validate that I'm feeling bad and that I'm going through something. I do not want you to tell me what my next step is. Just be with me in the problem. And this was, this was rocket science for me. And I've, I've, I've tried to do that now all these years. I try not to ever give my wife a solution. Just empathy, you're here. I'm sorry that you're going through that. She actually gave me the words to say. Like this, the, this is the sentence you say. And, and I say that sentence. Because that's how men are. You give them something to do and you, they can do it. They can actually function that way. Hindrances to intimacy. One is, is simply the differences between men and women. Second, self-preservation that won't make the effort anymore. And this one goes like this. I tried to be close. I told her what I needed. She told me what she needed. Okay? And men, usually what they need more of is sex, and usually what women need more of is emotional connection. And I've told them, and they are not listening to me. And so, rather than do the hard work of closeness... It's just, it's just easier to live as roommates and hide from one another. You just kind of accept a lower goal for marriage, your own goal. We are roommates. We can have 
a civil relationship, but intimacy is something that hurts too much. This is why I called it making marriage work. You're going to learn something about marriage. Marriage doesn't work on its own. It doesn't work on its own. God didn't design it to work on its own. He said this, Ecclesiastes 4.9, two are better than one, for they have a good return for their labor. Labor is another word for work. There is work in marriage. And if you choose not to do that work, and it's very easy in our culture to not do the work of marriage, um, because we are good at hiding. Rather than do the hard work of being close, the hard work of vulnerability, the hard work of possibly being pain or sharing real feelings, we can just simply hide. Uh, Pastor Tom, where do people hide today? Oh my. We hide in work. We hide in sports. We hide in our children. We hide in our grandchildren. We hide in media of all kinds, movies, books, uh, YouTube, all kinds of places to hide. Of course, number one place to hide today, of course, is technology. Have you, have you, ever, under, have you ever grasped what Facebook has done? I can be connected to everybody and close to nobody at the same time. And, and it's a perfect hiding place because I, I, I don't ever have to be close to anybody. I can be at lunch with somebody and still looking at my phone. I don't have to really listen or understand or hear because somebody might connect with me. It's robbing us of closeness and protecting us, really, from the pain of being too close. It also, of course, is keeping us from the the joy, the real joy that's in being close. All right. So here's my word to spouses before God. The reason why God put you together is so that they wouldn't be alone. If they're alone, God's expecting you to do something about it. So there was a certain couple, older couple, and they're in the kitchen. It's a Saturday morning, and the wife gets off the phone, and she just looks disgusted. And her husband says to her, sweetheart, what's wrong? And she says, do you know who that was? Do you know? That was Betty Johnson. And Betty can't talk right now. Do you want to know why? And he's like, why? Because her husband and her are having a heart-to-heart over coffee right now. Why can't we ever do that? And he's like, put on the coffee. So she puts on the coffee, and they both get a cup, and they sit at the table, and they're looking at each other. And after a while of awkward silence, he says, well, call Betty back. She's like, why should I call Betty? Find out what they're talking about. <laughs> so how do, you, how do you be close in conversation? Let me tell you something. One of the greatest hiding places in our culture is shallowness, where you, where you talk but never say anything. 
Just talk about what you did. Talk about the the movie. Talk about small things. Listen. Here's here's how you talk. You share real needs. You share real feelings. I realize this is going to be a challenge for some men. You're going to have to figure out what you do feel. It's where you share real fears. Honey, what are you afraid of? What are you really afraid of? It's where you share what you're excited about. What, what makes your heart come a, on a flame? Or oftentimes, that question to go deep is this. Because oftentimes, you've been married for a long time, and you've been around this world a long time, you're not excited about anything anymore. So the, the deep question is this. Where did you lose that excitement? What did you used to be excited about? And what happened that you're not excited anymore? Talking. Really talking. Really sharing. You know what this does for your spouse? When they have really connected, even if it's negative, even if your feelings are negative, even if what you're going through is negative, even if why you lost your excitement is a story, is a tragic story, do you know what it does for your spouse? Makes them feel close to you. Makes them feel like they're not alone. They've got their own story. And when one shares and asks and wants to hear, it will help the other one share. And all of a sudden, we are not alone anymore. Pastor Tom, that sounds like hard work. Yep, it's work. It's work. It's work. But I'll tell you what. (laughs) This is the work God wants us to do. It's part of our redemption. It's why he has made marriage. Okay. And then lastly, this is our third hiding place. The differences, or no, the third hindrance. One is the differences between men and women. Second is self-preservation that won't make the effort anymore. And here's the third hindrance to intimacy. Self-preservation that won't give another chance. In this one, someone in the marriage has betrayed the other. They've betrayed them either by pornography. You talk about a hiding place for men. If, they, if, if they've asked their wife for more and she doesn't want to and he doesn't want to humble him, he, he runs and he can hide here. He can take care of business himself. And it is tearing marriages apart. Or one or the other has committed adultery. Real adultery or emotional adultery with either a real person or a fantasy person on the internet, an image, uh, emotional intimacy with somebody in a novel or their favorite TV show, or, but there is another connection that has been made that is not with your spouse, that is, it is where you're drinking from. Now, as I talk about this, this is so prevalent and with so many people. I just, I need everybody to know, especially if you've told me your issues. 
I'm not talking about your situation, okay? I am not talking about anybody's personal situation, so don't leave here saying Pastor Tom brought us up today, okay? This is just, this is just in general. I've been counseling people for 32 years, so this is, this is just out there. Here's how, the, here, here's how you give your spouse another chance. In a contract, you don't. In a contract, you say this. Hurt me once, shame on you. Hurt me twice, shame on me. Because I should have protected myself. I should have made sure that you never do this again. But in marriage, covenant, it's not just you and that other person. It's the three of you. And when they sinned against you, they also sinned against God. When they betrayed you, they betrayed God first. And so when they come back, to really come back, they have to come back to God first and get God's forgiveness. True repentance always starts with what we've done against God, recognizing we've sinned against God. When they come back to God, and, and, and part of the betrayal is they didn't confess it. You found it out. You, you had to discover it. You found it on their text or on their computer or you caught them with the other woman or the other guy or you, you figured it out and, and they didn't confess it. You had to show them, and that's part of the betrayal, is how long would have this gone on if, I, if it hadn't been exposed? And so, then they own it. They own, yes, I did this. Yes, it's wrong. Yes, it's sin. Yes, and, and oftentimes, they really, really are sorry, and they want to make it right, and they repent before God. And here's what happens when you repent before God. This is very frustrating from the betrayed, to the betrayed person. God forgives them. And God gives them a new beginning. But you don't want to give them a new beginning. You don't want to really forgive them in a way that you would, could possibly be burned. Because if you really forgive, trust is different than forgiveness, but real forgiveness involves I am willing to trust you again. I don't trust you right now, but I'm willing for trust to be built again. And that makes us feel very vulnerable, like we could get hurt again. And so here's what it looks like. The prodigal has come home and is experiencing the party of God's grace and God's redemption. The offended one, the older brother, is outside now, the party of grace. What has happened was not his fault. The betrayal that the prodigal made was not his fault. He didn't ask him to betray, but he, the prodigal betrays both the father and the older brother because it's all about the inheritance. And, and, and so the older brother is out here, and the father has welcomed the prodigal back. Now let me say something about if you're the prodigal that's come back. You do not have the right to go out to the older brother and tell him what the right thing to do is. You don't get to go out to him and say, you know, you should really forgive me because that's what father wants. You've lost that voice, okay? Prodigal, you just got to humble yourself and, and, and pray. But if you're the older brother, if you're the one that's been betrayed and you're outside of the party of grace, 
You don't want to forgive. It's not right to forgive. It's not just to forgive. I want you to know this. You're going to get a visit from the Father. You're going to, the Father is going to visit you. And he's going to ask you about your Christianity. Do you believe in grace? Do you believe in a new beginning? It's not right. What he did, what she did is not right. I was betrayed. You know what the father's going to say? He's going to say, for starters, you have betrayed me as well in many, many ways, and I've welcomed you back. The second thing he's going to say is you want justice? I'll give you justice. My son died on a cross and shed his blood for this sin. That sin has been punished on the cross, just like all of yours have. That's my justice. The reason why I need you to come back into this party and give your significant, your spouse, another chance is it's a celebration of my redemption. What if they go astray again? What if they betray me again? Then the father says this to the betrayed one. They, they will have me to deal with. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Before they betray you, they betray me. You are free to give them a new beginning. I will be your protector. You don't, you can, you don't have to be your own protection. All right. We could have the worship team come up and would you mind just for a moment bowing your head closing your eyes. I've got a couple groups that I want to pray for. First one is this. Maybe you are here today. And you are the woman at the well. Your life is maybe broken. Maybe it's a mess. Maybe no one knows it's a mess because it's a, outwardly you make it look good, but inwardly you are a mess and deeply unhappy. And you're maybe assuming that God's unhappy with you too because you're so unhappy. Today, Jesus is coming to you and he wants you to look into his eyes because what he's feeling for you is not judgment, it's understanding. He knows, he knows everything. And he's looking at you and he's saying, I have a gift for you. I have a gift for you called eternal life. I have a gift called you that has within it this well of water of real life, of real joy. It is the joy of my presence. You were made for this. If you would ask me, I would give it to you. I know everything you've done. I know about all five husbands. I know your current situation. I know what you're running from. I know what you're hiding in. I know everything about you. And I still love you. But you need to ask me. Revelation 3.20 pictures it in a little different way. Jesus is knocking at the door. He says, behold, I stand and knock. If anyone opens that door and asks me, to come in, I will come in. This is what you were created for, closeness with God himself. So if that's you today, 
you're not, you're not sure that you're fully connected with God. You're not sure you're forgiven. You're not sure if you died, you'd go to heaven. You're not sure that you have access to that well that I'm describing. But today you're here and you know Jesus is knocking. You may not know why you know Jesus is knocking. You just know it. He is inviting me today with every head bowed and every eye closed because this is between you and God. The only reason I have you raise your hand is because somebody helped me open my door and I like to pray a prayer to help people say words to help them open their door and give you a point of contact where, yep, I opened the door that day, that day at City Church. So if that's you, would you just mind raising your hand real high right now, long enough for me to see it? We're going to pray. I see that hand. God bless you. I see that hand. God bless you. I see that hand. God bless you. I'm looking all over the sanctuary. I see that hand. God bless you. I see that hand up in the balcony and that hand up in the balcony and that hand up in the balcony. God bless you. Anybody else want to be part of this prayer? Just go ahead and raise your hand and we're going to have that prayer in just a, just a moment. Anybody else? I see that hand in the back. God bless you. If you raised your hand just now, would you mind just slipping it over your heart right now and here's the prayer. Just something like this. You just pray it in your heart to God. Jesus, I thank you for loving me. I thank you for coming to this earth and dying for me and for my sin. And and Lord, thank you that you shed your blood so that I could be, I could come out of hiding. Lord, thank you for not giving up on me. Thank you that you're knocking and you've been knocking and that you're knocking today. And Lord, I'm just, I'm, I'm surrendering today. I'm opening that door and saying, Lord, please come in. Give me that water. Give me that relationship. Give me the eternal life that you want me to have. It says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. I receive that gift right now by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Then could we stand together? We are going to have ministry teams, but I don't want you to have to wait for a ministry team or feel like you have to come forward. I want to do a prayer right now. If you're with your spouse, could you just grab their hand right now? And if not, if you're single, I want you to pray this with your future and you want to be married. I mean, there is an absolute path of singleness where it's just you and Jesus and I get that. But if you want to be married, I want you to be part of this prayer for your future spouse. And uh, Lord, I know that some of those, it's really uncomfortable to hold hands because there's so much pain there. Jesus, would you please help us to not be afraid of sharing what's real? Lord, would you forgive us for sometimes making our marriage like walking on eggshells? God, forgive us for all of the power plays of silence or using sex as a tool or any any power play. God, please forgive us of all of those things that have actually 
alienated our spouse. Lord, right now I know that some of us, you're calling out of, you're calling out of hiding that we become really, really good at hiding. And it's so funny because one of the hiding places is religion (laughs) where we just get really religious. So I can't be with my spouse anymore. God understands me, but I don't have any responsibility to be close to my spouse because I'm with God now. Lord, break down every lie we've believed. Break down every excuse. Expose every hiding place. And then Jesus, would you come into our mess And would you just be our savior? Lord, in a culture of failed marriages, would you save our marriages? Could we, Lord, please you with not just our desire for intimacy with you, but for our willingness to be close to our spouse? And then, Lord, I just pray for all of the single people here, whether you've been divorced and you're single or whether you've never been married and you're single but you have a desire to be married. Lord, right now, I'm just asking all the married couples, if you would just kind of join me in this prayer. Lord, we pray for our single people that you would help them now to find wholeness in the relationship with you. Lord, that you would save them from a culture that is giving the absolute wrong expectation and questioning their identity at every stage. Could every single person find a wholeness with just you, Jesus? Would everyone that's anxious to not be alone, I just gotta find somebody, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, and just the enemy is just trying to trap them. Lord, break that trap in Jesus' name. Please, God. Please, God. Please, God. And Lord, I just pray for all of us that feel like this message has just exposed a disaster in my life of sin and failure and self-preservation. Lord, the only reason you ever bring up anything is to, to heal us, to wash us, to heal us, and to give us a new beginning. The, the, the message was not about us. It was about redemption. And so I pray, especially pray for every older brother that's been betrayed, that they would come back into the party of redemption. It's okay to start over and give your spouse a chance again. It actually can be different. You know what? It can actually be better and stronger than it ever, ever was before. Come on, Lord. Bring, bring us back into your party of redemption, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, team. We're gonna have ministry teams up here. God bless you. Have a great day.